I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The Supreme Court changed the United States with his ruling in the Brown versus Board of Education case. The ruling that separating children in public schools on the basis of race was unconstitutional. From that moment on, children of all races and ethnicities would go on to school to learn and play together. But history shows that while some people in our country were excited with the ruling, others objected. Nationwide, the transition to having integrated public schools was not smooth, nor was it swift. That was most exemplified by what happened in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1957, where nine students were the first to integrate Central High School. But did you know that in, in a small town of Clinton, Tennessee, 12 students took the exact same step at their own high school one year earlier in 1956? It's a nearly forgotten part of Tennessee's history, United States history for that matter. Author Rachel Louise Martin spent nearly two decades talking with the people who were there at the time in Clinton. She details their story in her new book, A Most Tolerant Little Town. We're so happy to have her back on the show. Rachel Louise Martin, welcome back to This is Nashville. Good to see you again. Nice to see you, too. I'm so excited y'all wanted to talk about this today. Oh, yes, we did. I mean, this is history that many Tennesseans don't know, and I think it's really, really important. So, you know, let's begin with the court case that set all of this into motion. Not the famous Brown versus Board of Education case, but a case ruled specifically here in Tennessee. Can you tell me a little bit more about that case and who were the players involved? Yeah, so the case in Clinton was called McSwain versus County School Board of Anderson County, I think was the proper title for it. It all came about because before 1939, black teenagers in Anderson County had nowhere that they could go to high school. There were only a couple dozen kids of high school age who were black in the county, and so the county used a certain state law to justify not providing them with any education. In 1939, the black parents started a petition campaign and forced the school board to begin paying tuition for their students to attend classes in another county at a segregated school, but they did not pay um, transportation for that. In addition, the school that the kids were assigned to was a failing school. Clinton High School in downtown Clinton was an A-rated school. It was extremely academically high achieving, provided a lot of opportunity for the students who were assigned there. And in contrast, the students sent to La Follette segregated high school did not have those same sorts of opportunities. What was the reaction to the ruling? Well, so eventually the parents sued to say that is unequal education. And you have to let our students go to Clinton High School. Um, originally, they lose that lawsuit when they file it in 1950. And because the, the judge basically says everybody gets bused to schools and this is just the way it is. Um, after Brown versus Board of Education is decided, the case is reactivated. And when it is reactivated, then the black parents are given the ruling that says their kids have to be admitted to Clinton High. Initially, there is some outcry in Clinton, but it's all done along very legal lines. Hmm. I think the white people in Clinton never believed that segregation would be truly overturned. 
no one else had done it. And so they look at this and say, all we have to do is say, but this goes against the state constitution. In fact, there's a group called the Tennessee Federation for Constitutional Government because segregation was literally written into our state constitution. Mm. Interesting fact. Yes. Now, in the book, you paint two camps that kind of sprung up as a result of this ruling. The staunch segregationists, they're on one side, Mm -hmm. and the other were supporters of what they call law and order. What did, what were the beliefs on people on both of those sides? Well, so that's talking about all the white people. Mm-hmm. Yes, all the white people. <laughs> yes. Um, and there was no white person in Clinton at the beginning of the school year who stood up and said, I believe segregation is wrong. Instead, yeah, the closest you get is people who say, I believe in segregation, but I will obey the law. So if the law says I have to undo this white Southern way of life, then I will I will I will do that. And a lot of times that was done with the idea that it was going to be a short term situation, that eventually they would figure out a way, a new way of going about the court case that eventually they would win and be able to reinstitute segregation or like what happened here in Nashville, they would begin building private high schools or they would move out to other counties where segregation had not taken effect, basically white flight, that they could buy themselves enough time that their children would not be affected. Okay, now one person in the middle of this story was the principal of Clinton High School. He was not pro-integration, but he was committed to implementing the court ruling. So he was kind of like these law and order folks that you just described for us. Here he is on a TV interview that he was doing at the time. Let's listen. The brunt of the pressure was exerted on Principal D.J. Britton Jr., who had fought the original battle for segregation and was now fighting to obey the law of the land. Here is a matter that is clearly uh, a decision of the United States Supreme Court. And we do not feel that if we uh, allow or teach our citizens to disobey this law, that uh, they are learning the right principles of citizenship. In other words, if they can do that, they can violate any other law or any other decision in the country. Okay, now the news anchor in the clip talks about the pressure that D.J. Britton was under. Talk to me a little bit about the man. Who was D.J. Britton? D.J. Britton Jr. was basically an educator by inheritance. His dad had was a school principal. His uncle had been a superintendent of schools. His mom was a teacher. His wife was a teacher. They they educated the people of Anderson County and of Roan County next door for generations. He was passionate. He was creative. He turned Clinton High School into the sort of place where kids could go and get a top-notch education and end up in the Ivy Leagues. Um, he, he really believed in the power of education to change lives. And when, segrega- or when desegregation came about, he did not by any means agree with it. Mm-hmm. But he did say, every student who is put in my charge will receive the same quality of education. And he gave all of the students the same matriculation exams when it came time to enroll at Clinton High, which meant several of the black students were put into college track classes, which was 
a highly unusual and unexpected development of that. Um, yeah, he really tried. That's really interesting because here he is a person who doesn't agree with the, the, the decision, but his... What does that say about his values? Because he obviously values education and giving a quality education to the best of his ability, yet he is forced by law to give this quality education to students that normally under his own devices, he would not. Well, and he pays a tremendous price for it. He ends up having to hide out in other people's homes because his home is so repeatedly attacked and vandalized. Um, he has armed guards for part of the year because people are scared that he is going to be killed. Uh, he ends up losing about 50 pounds over the course of the first semester of school just from the stress and the strain. So the fact that he stuck with it and mm -hmm. didn't, didn't cave is honestly, especially given that it's not something he believed in, really remarkable. That's really, uh, that's interesting. You know, when you, when you were d conducting interviews for the book, did anyone talk to you about the position that Britton and others who shared his views kind of took and the, about those tensions that were caused in Clinton at the time? I think the closest people came was especially with DJ talking about how the experiences of that year changed him. Now, on the one hand, it really broke him, but he was also one of a couple of white people in Clinton who ended up believing segregation was wrong. Mm. And it took him the course of that year plus some more time, but his experiences watching the black students, working with the black children, getting to know their families, all of those moments did begin to transform his mind and his beliefs in a way that others had not followed. Um, mm. And there was also a great deal of anger among a lot of people who said, well, one of my favorite teachers just straight out called the county school board a bunch of panty wastes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For not having, because they didn't take a stand. Um, you know, the state, federal, and local officials really left the school hanging. Mm. And so there were a lot of people who said, if we were going to have to obey the law, other people should have been there to protect us while we did so. Mm. Now, there were 12 African-American students who were the first to desegregate Clinton High School. Can you tell me more about them and their families? Oh, they were, they were kids. Yeah. You know? And I think that's one of the things that really began to stand out with me at this project. So often we talk about major moments in American history as being brought about by heroic figures. Now, these kids were incredibly brave, but what they dreamed of was going to prom. Mm. They wanted to go to the homecoming game. That's one thing Joanne Allen Boyce talked about a lot with me. Um, they wanted to be able to attend their graduation. They wanted to have an opportunity to go to college. They wanted to play on the basketball team or the football team. One little girl played, wanted to play in the band. They, they had the dreams that teenagers have. Mm -hmm. you know, they wanted to go to the sock hop after the football games. They wanted to date. They wanted to fall in love. They wanted to get their hearts broken. They were 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids. Um, and they ended up taking an incredibly brave and radical step. But that radical step was they went to school and they got up the next day and they did it again. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk to them all these years later, how were their emotions about, how, how did they describe 
how that experience changed them as human beings, seeing that it happened so early in their formative years. Many of them talked about being robbed of their childhood, about how walking through the middle of a riot, all because you want to go to school, um, or even worse than that, the social isolation they faced. To go for an entire year and know that if you break your pencil lead, the person next to you is not going to lend you a pencil. They're not even going to make eye contact with you. Um, to, to go through a world in which at 15 years old, everyone pretends you don't even exist. And that's the best option because the only other option is that your life is in danger. Um, yeah, many of them, many of them talk about feeling as though they lost a faith in other people. They lost a trust in their community. And many of them talk about having symptoms of PTSD, which of course they did. Yeah. They were put in the middle of a war zone. Yeah. You know, I know there are different situations, but what you just described sounds like what students today are talking about with gun violence in schools. You know, a loss of innocence, a loss of childhood, having not being able to trust society or adults. It's interesting. Yes. Well, and then the other side of all of this that I don't think it's, it's discussed enough is the cost that that has on students' ability to even learn. Mm -hmm. And many of these kids, when they came into Clinton High School, were top-notch students. But when you sit through that amount of stress, your brain chemistry actually begins to change. And physiologically, in order to survive, you stop being able to absorb new information. And several of them began struggling with classes that they would go on to pass with flying colors in college without even needing to study. Mm -hmm. Just because of how the stress affected them, we're going to see a similar thing among today's students who are facing the constant threat of violence. Our brains cannot absorb new information when our goal is to survive. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to move on to the first day of school at Clinton High School. Due to this ruling, African-American students, they were then allowed to attend Clinton High School. From the stories you've heard, what was the atmosphere like at the school on the first day? For a lot of the black students, the first day was very hopeful. Hmm. Joanne Allen Boyce was elected vice president of her homeroom. The other candidate was a starter on the football team. She was elected unanimously. Now, do I know what being a VP of your homeroom means? No, I don't, neither did she, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a real honor. Yeah. Um, other At the end of the first day, some of the guys talk about maybe they'll get to try out for the basketball next spring, that Principal Britain's going to see how well this is going and they're going to get a shot. For a few of the students, though, they had already begun to pick up on the tensions. Bobby Kane, one of the seniors, had a staring contest with one of the white boys during the first morning home um, assembly that let him know things were not all as they, it should be. There were some protesters outside, not that many, somewhere between 50 and 75, but enough that there, I mean, that's a presence around a school at that point. Um, so there were, there were some students who were sensing some tensions that were beginning to build. You mentioned Bobby Kane, and we have a clip from him. He and Alfred Williams, they were the only two seniors of the group, and they dealt with some pretty more than just staring contests. They dealt with oh, some yes. violence from it the, ends up very bad for both the of very them. beginning. Here's Bobby telling you about what he and Alfred went through trying to leave school for lunch. 
Alfred and I decided to walk through the throng of people to go to the Richard Creamery to get a, a hot dog. They would have these hot dogs with uh, mustard and, uh, and chili and we would get a Coke and that, that was a bad move for us because as we started through the crowd, some of the young men, you know, confronted us and started asking us, you know, where we think we were going. And so one thing led to another, and Alfred and I both, we, we had knives, so we drew our knives. And so they were talking to us, and they, they didn't rush us anything at that time. But I think when I turned my back, and Alfred may have done the same thing, and someone hit my arm with a placard or a stick or whatever they had. And uh, they kind of uh, knocked the knife out of my hand, and I guess this is when they, and they might have knocked Alfred out too, I don't know. But next thing I knew, they were all on us with these placards and sticks and whatever else. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were trying to fight, but we know we couldn't do anything with those many. And then the police finally came and got us and took us to jail. And that was a bad moment for me, or at least for my mother. Okay, to hear him say that he, second time, he said that was a bad moment for us. That was a bad moment for me. It's like he's looking back at that time and just thought if I wanted a hamburger instead of a hot yeah. dog, what, how that would have changed. It seems that he's thinking about every step he took while he was in school that year to try what he could have done differently to avoid confrontation and violence. What type of effect did this have on Bobby when you talk to him? Well, the effect was fairly immediately obvious. Obviously, I wasn't there in 56 to discuss it with yeah. him. But um, that incident had happened the Wednesday, the first week of school, by which would have been like August 29th. By about September 13th, he was doing an interview with a reporter from Collier's Magazine. And the reporter talked about how his words would trail away, how he had appeared to block some of his memories that... Sweat began to form on his brow when he was asked questions about what he had faced, um, that he began, his hands would shake. And he, he compared it to men coming back from combat. Um, and when I talked to Bobby Kane over 50 years after the incident had occurred, um, he said that the first time he really understood what had happened to him was when he began hearing descriptions of soldiers coming back from Afga Afghanistan. Whoa. And people began to discuss the after effects of combat. And he said, that's me. I could have used some of that same help. I could have used some of that same treatment. Wow. It was breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and as a kid, 17 yes. year old, 16 year old kid. Yes. Going through this, you know, um, but as as let's move on in the story, I'm really kind of taken aback by what you just shared, and thank you for that. But you know, as we think about the segregationists, what did they do as the school days went on? You mentioned that there were small crowds at first. How did that change over the course of time? Well, the first morning of school, there were just fifty or seventy-five people. Everybody was silent when the black students showed up. So there was no actual heckling. They had signs. They had stuff like that. But everyone goes, Joanne called it creepily silent. Mm. Um, by that afternoon, there was a group of white boys who had pushed a black woman down and broken her glasses. Another group of protesters throw a bottle at a black woman walking by. By that night, several hundred white people had gathered in the town square 
and held a rally for or for segregation. By the next morning, the numbers around the school had doubled. The morning after that, they'd grown even more. It began to grow almost exponentially. Um, and then the rallies at night were increasingly violent with people rocking cars that were driven by black people. Two major highways ran through Clinton at the time. So travelers who were on their way to or from their Labor Day vacations who had not heard about what was going on would suddenly find themselves in the midst of what could quickly have become a lynch mob and in one instance almost did. What, what, what happened there in that instance? Um, it was the following. It was on Labor Day. And the mob had been displaced from Clinton, sent by the National Guard, and ended up in in Oliver Springs. And two black men drove through Oliver Springs after having been out squirrel hunting for the weekend for Labor Day. And a group of white men surrounded their car, rocked it, began you know making making them scared for their lives. Eventually, they pulled just outside of town, and one of the men got up and shouted back at the white men, what are you doing? And the white men started to come after them. Reports differ about exactly what happened. A shot was fired into the air, but some buckshot ended up hitting one of the white men in the arms mm. and a lynch mob formed. And it was it took all of the National Guard along with all sorts of other inter interventions in order to save the men's lives. Now there was people, there were people who were kind of leading these gatherings, these growing, increasingly growing violent gatherings at night. Who was, who were those folks? Mm, well, one was a man named Willard Till. He was a um, local mechanic who worked at Oak Ridge. He had invented all sorts of different gadgets. He had a couple patents to his name. He was a very inventive and creative and intelligent man. Um, and he quickly stepped up and became one of the leaders of one of the chapters of the White Citizens Council in Anderson County. Um, there was also a, a man named Alonzo Bullock, who was a local reverend. And he would lead the prayers that happened before any of the nightly rallies. He also led prayers before the various white citizens council meetings, Klan meetings, or the Tennessee white youth meetings. Um, so he was sort of the chaplain for the segregationists. And then there was an outsider that everybody wanted to blame. Hmm. Who was he? His name was John Casper. He was an Ivy League educated Yankee from New Jersey who showed up, was thrown into jail less than 24 hours after he arrived sat in jail until midway through the first week of school, at which point they were already, they'd already beaten up Bobby Kane. Like the, the protests were well underway. Yeah. Um, he attempted to take control of it. He wanted to become a national leader in the segregationist movement. Um, eventually they bomb him and run him out of town. They so. run him out of town. So yes. he was almost, he was there as an opportunist. That is my interpretation of it. Hmm. A lot of locals will still say he was the problem, but I, if you look at what actually happens, I, I think he, he hoped to be the problem. And instead, he found himself with a bit more than he could handle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, we, we have all these people, personalities, folks from coming from different places to this small town where, you know, it's over this issue of racism, class, and equality. Yet this town, before this ruling, seemed to have some sort of order. Now, I'm not saying that the order was pleasant, but there was an order 
tell me, like, what was this town like before the call for desegregation at Clinton High? I think it was about the best a version of a small town in Tennessee you could hope for at the time. Mm. Life was very segregated. Their life was also very heavily divided along class lines. So if you were a coal miner, your life, or worked in magnet knitting mills, your life was very different than if you were the son of the local mayor, for instance, or you know, an, a, a lawyer, an administrator at Oak Ridge. But everyone in town had figured out how to coexist. Mm. And that is, in fact, where the title of the book comes from. When I asked Joanne Allen about desegregation, what they expected, she said, basically, we all had hope because Clinton was a tolerant town. And at the time, when we first decided on calling the book A Most Tolerant Little Town, I saw that as being tragic. And instead, I've started to have to redefine what tolerance actually is. How have you done that? When we use the word tolerance, we're not saying we actually like something mm -hmm. or even we accept it. Mm -hmm. We tolerate an itch. We tolerate a cough. We tolerate something unpleasant until the moment we don't tolerate it anymore. And then we destroy it. So tolerance is not a quality that we should be bragging about. No. Yet we continue to. It's over better over. than most of us even manage most of the time. And that's true. That's true. Now, I, I do want to speak to you about something that Joanne Allen, now Joanne Boyce, said. She talked about growing up next to a poor white family that lived next to hers. And a quick note, she does use the N-word to describe what happened to her. Let's listen. But when we integrated the school, the boys that lived in that family that I had played with all my life, that I had gone inside the house and eaten the best red tomatoes with home fries ever. The mother who came across the street all the time who barged uh, sugar. The father, the white father who had gone hunting and had come along with a deer on the side of his car and given my parents deer meat. That family, the boys in particular, I'm, I'm not sure mom and dad had anything to do with it, but those boys, they were the people in the crowd that I recognized when I walked down the hill screaming, go home, we don't want you in our school. Those were the two boys I recognized in the crowd. You know, it, it just hurts your heart that the kids that you grew up with that was perfectly okay to play with and eat together, you know, and share things with, would say things like that to you. She's talking about the shock that she experienced from boys who were childhood friends, but now they treat her like an enemy, subhuman. How did that resonate with you as she told you that story? It's one of those moments where we all have examples we can point to in our own past in which someone betrayed us in one way or another. And it's so tempting to then begin to think that I have some sort of equivalency mm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was bullied at one point as a kid and that I can understand what she would have felt being bullied as a kid. But the reality is I have no comprehension of what it means to have people that I was friends with, that I trusted, that I had shared all of this, these moments with, turn on me simply because of my skin color and the fact that I was to use a phrase that was very common in the day, getting uppity, mm. that I believed that I, I should get to have a decent education. Um, and I, I, have, I have no understanding mm. of what that means. Yeah, that's um, like they talk, quote unquote, they, they tolerate people as long as they stay in their place. Yes. We can even play together, be neighbors, be human to each other. But as soon as you step outside of this place that I predetermined for you to be in, which jeopardizes mine, suddenly you're an enemy. Yes. And we treat, I talk about how we treat memory and history in America as a zero-sum game. We treat all aspects of power in America as a zero-sum game. We have set our world up in a way that if one person in our society begins to succeed, that means other people we believe have to fail. And that is a inherently and intrinsically violent way to construct a world. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more with art author Rachel Louise Martin about the desegregation of Clinton High School and discuss the increased violence in town that caused the National Guard to arrive. Do you have a question for Rachel about this time in our state's history? Let us know by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Colonna, and this is Nashville. My guest today is author Rachel Louise Martin. Her latest book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, describes the story of desegregation of Clinton High School in 1956. She spent close to 20 years talking with people in Clinton about this time in our state's history. Now, before the break, we learned about the town of Clinton, the students who were the first to integrate and some of the segregationists who opposed. Now let's move forward in the story and talk about how the state leaders responded or didn't respond in some resp- regards. Rachel Louise Martin, thank you again for being here. Really a pleasure. I'm having a great time so far. So am I. So am I. This is fascinating <laughs> to learn, you know. And you, you mentioned it a little bit before the break. Tensions were high. Protests at the school at night in the court square were growing more violent, more people. So eventually the National Guard was called in. What led the governor to make that decision? Well, our governor at the time was named Frank Clement, and he was friends with the mayor's son. Hmm. So the mayor's son was named Buford Llewellyn, and Buford had at one point been a representative to Tennessee's House of Representative at the same time that Frank Clement was getting his start, they remained friends. As the violence in Clinton was building, you gotta remember this is coal mining country. People like to blow things up. Mm-hmm. That was a that was a standard part of any labor action that happened. And so the protesters begin talking about blowing up the courthouse, blowing up the mayor's house. They begin attacking the cars of black travelers as they're passing through the town. 
Buford and his father and the rest of the white men leading the town say, okay, this is going to get really bad. Our civic centers cannot be destroyed. They don't offer any protection to the black community, but they do reach out to the governor and say, if you don't intervene, this is going to be basically war. And, you know, the sheriff and the police, they were vastly outnumbered by the segregationist crowds. They convinced the Frank Clement to send in the National Guard, as you said, at least they were there for at least a few weeks, I understand, right? They were, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, there's another student, Gail Ann Epps, now Gail Ann Upton, who shared her memory of the guard rolling through the town of Clinton. If you were sitting in church and all of a sudden you hear all this moment like thunder coming in and... and, and and we knew what it was, but we couldn't, I just couldn't picture myself. I've seen this overseas, you know, where, where tanks come into town and, and you know, and the little kids running around, and, you know, in war. But I never dreamed that it would be in Clinton. And by the time we got downtown at the courthouse, Honey, they were so many troops and guns and tanks, and I thought, Jesus Christ. You know, and my sister was just having a field day. Her, sir, her sister was having a field day <laughs> as the tanks came in. They were only there for a few weeks. Were they able to make things safer for black students and the black people of Clinton at that time? In a way, momentarily, yes. So by the end of that weekend, they have effectively shut down protests in downtown Clinton. They have basically enacted a martial law in the county. Um, So that begins to change things. Also, the adjutant general, Joe Henry, was one of the only white leaders to extend actual protection to the black community. So the black men of the community, had, they were mostly veterans of Korea and World War II. They had organized their own patrols to try to protect their families and their homes. Um, he is one of the only leaders who says, okay, we got we to gotta help them and prevent them from needing to actually shed blood mm-hmm. to save their kids' lives. Um, and so he, put, he would send patrols and tanks up through the black neighborhood. At that point, though, the violence gets off the street, but it begins to move into the school itself. Mm. The white football players attempted to patrol the hallways. They attempted to do inside the school basically what the National Guard was doing outside the school. But of course, the school hallway is a busy, busy place. A lot of things happen that nobody sees. And so as the violence moves off of the streets, life inside the school becomes increasingly dangerous for the black students. I mean, so much so that you write that some of the 12 students, they left the high school mid-year. Oh, yes. When you talk to them about this this time and their decision to leave, what, what was their reasoning? Their lives were in danger. We just heard Galen Epps talking about the tanks coming into school. Later in the interview, she talks about almost being pushed out of a second-story window. Um, multiple students had knives pulled on them. One boy had a pickaxe brandished in his face. Students would come in and find tacks in their seats, which Joanne Allen noted was rather foolish at that point in time. They were checking their seats before they sat down anywhere. Yeah. Um, 
students, but there were also both students who would pretend to be lynching their fingers, putting a noose around their fingers. But then the students were also lynched in effigy on campus at one point during the year. Um, So they, they faced a lot of both threatened and actual violence. Was DJ Brinton still the principal at the time? He was, yes. And he had very limited ability to do anything about it. The school board refused to intervene. They did not even meet with him about the situation until December of 1956, so three months after desegregation began. When they did meet with him, they basically told him that if he expelled any white student for what they were doing, the school board would reinstate them. Mm, So that's basically a sanction. Basically a sanction. So, you know, there is this white reverend by the name of Paul Turner who kind of sees this unsafe situation for black students and is super, he's very troubled by it. Tell me real briefly, who was he and what was he like? Paul Turner was charismatic. He was, he must have been a phenomenal preacher when he took over First Baptist Church of Clinton, which was already the largest Baptist church or largest church in town. Within a year, it had grown astronomically because everybody from all the other congregations started going there. Um, So he had a lot of power, a lot of sway, and he had a seminary professor who had been attempting to convince him to abandon segregation for almost a decade at this point. Turner had always refused and always said no, no, but by the time he's watching what's happening with the black students, he starts to really question and remember what he had heard from his professor and what he'd heard from some of the black other black ministers in town when they had met together. And he decides that it's time for him to get involved and intervene. He did, and he put himself in danger. He was, in fact, intact by an angry mob. This is what he told a TV interviewer about what happened next. About 300 yards away from the high school, we were far away from where the policemen were doing their duty, of course, in front of the high school. One of the uh, Citizens Council members had stationed himself with about three other men on a corner. As I made my way to that corner, they jumped me. It was at that time also that I realized I had to defend myself in some way, and so I took off after the man who had slugged me, pinned him against a a car, and immediately about uh, eight to ten people were on our backs. It was a it was a horrible thing, and I thought they were actually killing him. Blood was streaming down his face, and even it just looked that blood was running out of his eyes. Um, I asked someone in the group, just anyone, to help him, and when there was no response, I uh, went to him and tried to assist him by pulling some of the men's arms from around his face. When all the time the men. Uh, in this group who were standing around were screaming, kill him. And that's exactly what I thought they were going to do. That was the last verse was a member of Turner's congregation who talked, who happened to be at the scene Mm -hmm. when that occurred. What effect did his almost getting beaten to death have on the people of Clinton? Well, the most important effect it had was they were having municipal elections that day. And the White Citizens Council, along with the Tennessee White Youth, had a slate of candidates and a whole lot of of 
energy behind them. But when the law and order folks saw what was happening, everybody got out to vote. Kids came back from college six and seven hours away, just squealing into town just in time to vote to make sure that now, again, the person they put into power was not an integrationist by any stretch of the imagination, but he did not side with the more violent segregationist side. So it did keep some balance of power in town. Now, you know, Bobby Kane goes on to graduate. He talked about a fight that he got into on his graduation night. Real briefly before we go to break, why did it matter so much? Well, I think I, we understand why it matters so much to segregation is that Bobby not only attended Clinton High School, but he graduated as well. You know, they obviously don't want to see African-American and black students succeed. They didn't want to see it back then. But, you know, what did Bobby talk to you about the tensions after graduation and Clinton? Uh, basically after he just needed to get out of town and he did very quickly. He spent that next summer traveling and um, appearing in various civil rights venues, talking about civil rights. He ended up here in Nashville to attend Tennessee State um, and ended up earning a degree in social work. But his his life in Clinton was basically severed by these experiences. His he could not he could not remain there after what had happened. Let's take one last break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Rachel Louise Martin about her new book, A Most Tolerant Little Town, and her process in researching and writing it. We want to hear from you, so join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking with the author, Rachel Louise Martin, about the town of Clinton, Tennessee, which was one of the first in the country to desegregate at its local high school. It's a very deep story, and it was almost forgotten, a story we all need to know. Rachel Louise Martin, thank you again for being here and bringing us this story. Really appreciate this conversation. I've loved a chance to talk about this. This is great. Now, you know, there were two people who played prominent roles in Clinton during the time, Principal D.J. Britton and Reverend Paul Turner. They both left Clinton after a while. Talk to me first about Britton. Where did he go? DJ Britton quit his job at the end of that school year. He went to New York University to earn a doctorate in education. He then ended up a superintendent in New Jersey, mm. where he faced yet another racial crisis. Um, but th by then, he had pretty radically changed his views. He ended up taking on the entire district, restructuring everything to balance out races across all of the different schools. He implemented new black history and black studies programs, added black literature into the classrooms and into the library, really attempted to have a, a different outcome that time around. So he, he went through this experience and changed himself deeply, deeply to where he implemented this for the state of New Jersey. Now, I understand that he died by suicide. Yes, he did. Can you tell us what you learned about that? When he retired, he and his wife moved back to Clinton to be near family. Um, she ended up dying of cancer. And his experiences in Clinton that year had broken him. 
his family unanimously has said that he could not survive that brokenness without her there to stabilize him. Mm. And he ended up committing suicide. Now, Reverend Paul Turner, what did he what did he do after a while? He stayed in Clinton for about three more years. Then he came here to Nashville and became the pastor over at Brook Hollow Baptist and helped them figure out the, the desegregation crisis here in Nashville. Uh, eventually, he went on and also got a doctoral degree and became a divinity professor. But he also had been just so broken by his experiences in Clinton that he, in addition, ended up killing himself. That's real heavy. It's extremely heavy. It's like the costs of social change that yes. many of us don't think about. Yes. How did learning about these two men and their their lives later after this in incident and this important time in Clinton, how did that really impact you? Learning about both these men and also really looking at the cost that the black students paid, um, the long-term impact that this had on their lives on their mental health, we demand so much of the people that we decide are going to change our history. Um, and a lot of times we put that, now in the case of Turner and Britain, we're talking about adults. But so often when we are looking for someone to intervene and fix us, we're looking to the next generation. We're putting it onto kids. Mm. I see it even right now in Nashville when you think about the gun violence protests. It has been the children who have been out in the streets. It's been the children who have been facing down the politicians and the senators. There were some parents there, too. There were some adults there, too. But it's been another children's crusade. And eventually it's time for the adults in the room to stand up. Mm. One, one last question about Clinton. Um, I, I understand that one year later, Clinton High School was destroyed by dynamite. It was. When you go back there, when you went back there for this research, these oral interviews, what do people say about that? What, 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 what was the energy you felt in Clinton? The dynamiting is much of what contributed to the silence. It's a lot of the reason we don't know the story today. Um, the people of Clinton, when the school is bombed and destroyed, chose silence as a way of being able to maybe not move past this, but to try to move on from this. Mm. They all had to shop at the same grocery store. They all had to go to the same cinema. They only had a couple of churches to choose from. And so the dynamite really became for them what they hoped would be the final moment in this story. As you were collecting these oral interviews and going through this process, how open were people initially? What did you have to do to warm up to get them to talk about this thing that they had been silent for for decades? Some people were very eager to talk, mm -hmm. especially, I think, if they hoped to make sure their version was what ended up the official version, yeah. um, if they felt they had a stake in that. Many other people, though, were hesitant. Um, they were concerned about what this would mean for their community. They were concerned about what this would mean for their families or for themselves. Often they knew that they had some memories that other people in the town would find uncomfortable. And then, of course, there was also a, a racial issue to the interviews. I am a white woman talking very often with people who have been attacked by white women. 
And so there was some work that we needed to do there as well. How'd you do that? Um, well, sometimes I stalked them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that may not help, but no, not, not you yeah. know, I'll just show up at your doorstep and see what happens. Okay. Um, but no, it, it was a lot of honest conversations mm. about who I was, what I was doing, what I hoped to accomplish, why I cared yeah. when no one had bothered to ask about this story before. Why was I sitting there doing so now? And we would, we would talk through that. You know, talking about honest conversations, and we have just a minute left, so I don't want to make this too long, and I would give you opportunity to think and answer this, but on social media, a lot of us, we want to declare that we're not, that we're anti-racist. And it's also easy, easy for people to claim racist views. You know, there's a lot of moral signaling on social media, in our public sphere, even sometimes in the media. What'd you learn about writing this book about the difference between talking about our beliefs and taking action, having heard from the kids and the stories of these two men DJ Brenton and Paul Turner, who ended up taking their own lives. What'd you learn? I learned that the most important thing to do if you want to change yourself, if you have something that you are concerned about inside yourself, is not reading reading or studying or talking or thinking. And I'm saying this as an academic who loves all of those things. <laughs> but the way you change yourself and the way you change your society is by doing. It is by getting out and taking action it is by not being the leader in the room, but by being the follower in the room. It is identifying the people who are going in the direction you want to go and following their lead, doing what they tell you to do, sitting down when they tell you to sit down, shutting up when they tell you to shut up, and listening. And, and giving people the opportunity to change as DJ Brinton and Reverend Paul Turner did. Change is possible. Yeah. We have to believe that. Rachel Louise Martin is the author of A Most Tolerant Little Town. It talks about the desegregation of Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee. Rachel, thank you for being here. Thank you for this book. Really appreciate this. Well, thank you for this conversation. I've enjoyed it. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced and directed by Char Daston. Laura Boach is our technical director. Live tweeting was handled by Elizabeth Burton. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.